from your church, I would like to ask you to please make your way back to your seats. And as you prepare to hear the preaching of God's Word, we are actually back into the book of James. So if you would, please turn with me to James chapter 4. And this morning, Josiah will be preaching out of verses 13 through 17. I want to invite you to please stand with me as we read God's word together as I lead us. Trinity Community Church, this is God's word. Verse 13 and following says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Church, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather as a community of believers to hear your word preached. And thank you that you continue to speak to us through your word I pray that you would grant us now the gift of illumination, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit. You would open our hearts and our minds to behold the wondrous works of your law so that the sinner can become a saint and so the saints can grow in sanctification. May we bring glory to your name. Bless the preaching of your word. Bless Josiah. Lead him and guide him by your Holy Spirit. Anoint him with your Holy Spirit to preach the word of God faithfully, rightly, and accurately, that we may be transformed as your people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Alex. Whoa. Um, As Alex said, my name is Josiah, and it's a privilege to be here this morning studying the Word of God with you all and having the just privilege and honor to preach it. I uh, have also have the opportunity to lead our Resolved student ministry, which is a lot of fun. They're a very entertaining group. Um, I don't know that they could say the same about me, um, but they could say the same about my kids, um, for sure. Um, so we're back into James, and I'm excited about this message, and to be honest with you, it's a little heavy, too. Um, just going to kind of throw that out there to start. Last year on the night of August 16th, we had just put our kids to bed, and I got a phone call from my dad at like 9 o'clock, which is a little rare, and so I answered immediately thinking something was wrong, and in his voice, it was evident that something had happened, Um, and so I started, you know, you immediately, it's amazing how many thoughts you can go through in your head, and so I just assumed that his dad had passed. Um, It was something we had talked about and planned for and just kind of anticipated. We were emotionally prepared for the situation. Um, But what I wasn't expecting was him to say that his brother, um, 
died suddenly from a heart attack. Um, and he was 54 years old and in impeccable health. He was on his weekly five-mile run around the school where he taught and was an athletic director. None of us expected this. No one could have expected this. Danny's wife and three kids were left confused with questions and with so much more of their own life to live, now without their father and husband. Danny's father and brothers and sisters were left missing the brother and watching so many memories laid the rest. In that moment, my whole family, we were hit with the, the reality that life is short and fragile and kind of left with the question, what are we supposed to do with that? And a lot of you have experienced that in here this morning. Our culture tries to give us answers to help us cope with the fragile nature of our lives. Some are more nihilistic, why does it matter? And others, and what I think is even more common today, preach the idea that we're on this journey in life to be our best self, to be all that we can be. And we, as a culture, foam at the mouth of the story of redemption when we see someone climb up out of the pit, right? We just love that. We eat that up. It's like what every movie is about coming out these days. And the, but the secular perspective on redemption is very different from what we call the Christian perspective. And it's summed up well in a poem written by William Ernest Henley in, in 1875 called Invictus. And it goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Henley gives us this image of a man who's been drugged through the ringer, his head bloodied, but he's not knocked down. He's not afraid. He is the master of his fate, and he is the master of his soul. And if we're honest, all of us in here, we have something inside of us that's, that's what we want. We want that control. We want that autonomy. But James is going to show us in this passage here in uh, chapter 4, 13, how that desire for autonomy collides with what we claim to believe as Christians. He will explain that in our arrogance, we presume so much from our God, who is the giver of all things, and we assume that ourselves are the ones to be responsible for that. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we're like that three-year-old, speaking from experience, who is completely dependent on their parent, but puts up a fight to be in control. Our prop statement for this sermon comes from a uh, Question one of the New City Catechism. I didn't write a prop statement. I just totally stole one. <laughs> and um, because it's perfect. It's perfectly applicable for what we're doing. Um, and I'm going to read the question. And then I want us all in unison to read the answer aloud. And this is a moment not to just 
regurgitate what you see on the screen, but let's confess this with purpose. Confess it as truth. So, all right, it's up there. I'll read the question, and then you can read the, we'll all read the answer together. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to his soul, both in life and death, to God, Jesus Christ. Amen. See, we're going to see that when this reality, here in this passage, that this reality is ignored. And James is going to speak how that can conflict with our desire as created beings. And if you've been with us for some time, Alex mentioned that we're back in James. And just to kind of give a little recap, and if you haven't been with us, we'll give a little brief context. James is half-brother of Jesus, right? And he's the leader of a Jewish Christian church located in Jerusalem. And it's more than likely the first gathering of believers, like Christian believers ever, right? And he's just through the book so far in chapter one, he encourages them to remain steadfast in the midst of persecution from their friends and family in order to receive the crown of life. And also to not just be hearers of the word, but actually apply the word of God to the life and be doers. And then in chapter two, we see this, this con- uh, po- very popular passage of it's faith without works is dead. And we see that we are, not, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And then now into chapter three and into chapter four, for the rest of the book, we're going to see how that faith plays itself out in our daily lives. So if you would, I'm going to read the passage again, just so it's right there on our minds, and then we're going to dive right on in. First, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who has given us your word. Thank you for being a God who does not take us as good people and make us better, God, but that you take us as broken people and you make us new. Thank you for being a God who has called us and who has saved us. And now as we, we hear the word, your word preached and we study it, Lord, wash over us. Convict our hearts where we need conviction. Father, encourage us where we are broken and hurting. And in all these things, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to glorify you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him, it is sin. See, James starts this passage just trying to grab the reader's attention to prepare them for a rebuke. And with this come now, you who say, and if it feels at all like James is just turning a corner and changing the topic, it's because he is. This is a sharp turn in the grammar. And starting here in verse 13 and running all the way to 511, he's going to lay out these implications of our faith. In other words, he's going to show us that our mindset, it actually matters and how it plays out. He starts with these, you who say, who are they? Who are these people? It's pretty vague. There's more than likely that they're Christians and non-Christians, but the you who say is they're merchants, business people. And James gives us the most basic understanding of a business plan possible. 
they're going to go somewhere on a certain day, stay there for a certain amount of time, and turn a profit. And there's no reason to assume that these merchants are doing any ungodly business or practicing cheap practices like business practices. They more than likely just want to make a living so they can provide a food, a home and food on the table for their families. So what's the issue? Why is James accused? He's not accusing them of wanting to control their lives just because they made plans, right? I mean, if the idea of making plans and a profit is wrong, there are a lot of people in this room, myself included, who have some very significant life repenting to do and change their this, the layout of our lives. I mean, if you look at my work calendar right now, you will see that I have scheduled a trip to go into such and such a town for such and such a day, trade such and such a business stuff, and then make a profit. And I'll tell you what, if I don't make a profit, I'll have such and such a conversation with my boss when I get back. It's kind of the way the world works, right? So what's the issue? You see, James isn't accusing them of wanting to control their lives just because they made plans. But instead... These merchants are living as functional atheists. They're living their lives, they're living as if their lives are without a creator who is in fact their provider. In other words, they are the highest being in their lives. They are God. John Piper puts it this way, saying that the plans made by the merchants in verse 13 are made in the mind and spoken with the mouth without taking a true view of God and life into account. These merchants are living their lives without any acknowledgement of God's provision or even his existence. They are planning without submitting to God's will. In their minds, they are the captains of their fate. They are the masters of their soul. Where in our lives are we tempted to live as functional atheists? Does what we say we believe about God actually impact our daily lives? See, our family, I referenced the first question earlier. We're going through that with our daughter and trying to do it with ourselves as well. Question two reads, what is God? And the answer is God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He's eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. See, if we believe that God did in fact create everyone and everything, how are we talking about those people that we claim he created in his image? When we get cut off driving to work, or our boss is awful to us, or our parents are disrespectful to us, or our children are disrespectful to us, or our spouses, or whomever it may be. If we believe that God created these people in his image, are we slandering his image? Are we speaking excellent things about his image? See, but if we're honest, living as a functional atheist will be a struggle for all of us in a lot of different ways. Whether we're planning and we lose focus of God like these merchants. See, if you look at any personality test like the super popular Enneagram, which I know a lot of people in my age group know about and talk about, and yeah, there's like probably three times in our daily conversations with my wife, it gets brought up. Um, she said I could say that. <laughs> um, there's, you're going to be labeled with a lot of different things. Some of you in here, you're planners. Some of you are high achievers. Others are spontaneous. Some are more peaceable. 
whatever it may be. And I just want to be clear that just because you're more inclined to go with the flow and you're not one of these planners like these merchants doesn't mean you can just assume, okay, this passage isn't for me because I'm not planning my life outside of the will of God. No, still, you're living your life. You could be living your life outside of the will of God and just making plans on the spot and still not be taking into account whatsoever that God has a plan of redemption that he's executing and that you are a part of. See, if our Christian lives do not have practical distinctions from the truth we claim to believe, do we really believe them? The gospel does not just impact what we do on Sundays or keep us from swearing or watching bad movies. See, it impacts every element, every moment of our lives. Actions, words, thoughts, and motives, all are impacted by the gospel we claim to believe. One way I was convicted while studying this verse is when planning our family vacation, do we actually pray about it? Or do we think we're just kind of escaping from our reality when we go on vacation, thinking that God isn't involved in that? See, there's nothing too insignificant or too important to not pray about or pray for. In the same way we want our children to come tell us about something that could be the most serious thing, we also want them to come tell us that they painted some picture blue. Our Father's the same way. Your Father loves you, and He wants to hear from you. In verse 14, James is going to just lay down the hammer to his readers, saying that yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. Which brings us to our next point, a foolish boasting. How many of us in here, and be honest, have been in a conversation where we led our, the other party to believe that we know more about a topic than we actually did? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying again. So an article published by the Psychological Science found that when people rated themselves highly in a certain category, they were more likely to claim knowledge about fake facts. Um, if someone prior to taking a survey said that they were a uh, high academic, they would ask them questions about biology, and they'd say, have you ever heard of metatoxins and retroplex? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Those don't exist. Not that I knew that before, but they, they don't exist. And also, if someone claimed to be a world traveler or knew geography very well, they'd ask them if they had been to or had heard of places like Monroe, Montana, or Lake Othello, Wisconsin. Again, not real places, but people would say, yes, I've been there. And I'm sure some of you in here right now are like, yeah, I've actually been there. No, it doesn't exist. See, in the same way, in these merchants, they're presuming, based off of their experience, their safety and their privilege. Scott McKnight puts it this way, the merchants presume upon God for travel, safety, business, and profits. And James is going to rebuke this twofold. First, he reminds them that they do not, in fact, have eternal foresight and knowledge. Similar, similarly to our participants in the psychological science study, these merchants are overly confident in their immediate context, whether it's because of their training or because of past experience. And James is rebuking that, saying, yet you do not know, and that yet you do not know. That's a very, what they call, relative pronoun. And really what he's saying is that whoever you may be, like this, I'm throwing this out to whoever you are, whatever your experience is, whoever you may be, whatever you've done, I don't care. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. 
no matter what level of experience or enlightenment we believe we have come to, we're not all-knowing beings. It's not just our areas of expertise that we can fall victim to this, though. This presumption, it's just human nature for us to think we know more or know what's going to happen, whether we realize it or not. We live our lives under a lot of presumptions in the 21st century, right? I presume a door will open when I push it. I presume a text message will send when I hit send. I presume uh, my phone connects to Wi-Fi when I walk into my house. I presume a lot of things. I presume my car is going to start. Malcolm Gladwell, or excuse me, let me back up. See, in our daily lives, we build up levels of success that lead us to think that we are, in fact, invincible or even in control. See, Malcolm Gladwell explains this in this concept in his book, David and Goliath. He explains that when the Germans were bombing London, they wanted to inflict so much trauma on the Londoners that they would not want to leave their bomb shelters to live life or fight back. See, but after so many bombings, so many people were still alive after experiencing so much bombings, that something called a remote miss was developed. And he says it this way, instead of creating trauma, it in fact did the opposite. It created a series of city of remote misses, which led to courage. See, one other thing he mentions in this is that those who were still living in London after the several bombings, they would just walk around the city as the bomb sirens sounded thinking that there's no way a bomb's going to land on me this time. It hasn't happened before. This is the same reason we Floridians jump in puddles during hurricanes. See, we have so much privilege and convenience in our world today that most of us walk through our daily lives without even considering going hungry, being able to find clean water, or if, we're, if we get hurt, having modern medicine, or whatever it is. We have all these remote misses of what could what danger could happen or suffering could happen that we don't consider the reality that our life is fragile and that there's someone protecting us through it all. In verse 13, 16, excuse me, he says that you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. And when we lay it out, this idea that we're trying, that we're saying we're in control of our lives, that we're the master of our fate, we're the captain of our soul. When we say that out loud, we're like, yeah, that makes sense. That is pretty arrogant to assume, Right? If we, when we succeed in business and credit it to our, our own smarts, we see it as arrogant, right? But it's those people, it's in our arrogance that God sent his one and only son to save us. Amen. And he saves us in spite of our arrogance. In a few weeks, as Alex mentioned, we'll be tracing the progress of redemption throughout all of scripture. And when I started studying this, I started tracing another theme, and it's the theme of people think they know better than God. And human arrogance and overconfidence is nothing new. It has literally been the cadence of Scripture from the beginning. In Genesis, the serpent asks Eve, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall not sure, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took from the fruit of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. From the garden... We go to Abraham. 
who, as was mentioned earlier, lies to two kings about his wife being a sister because he doesn't trust God's promise that he will keep him safe and get him to the promised land. Oh, and he has a promised child that rather than waiting on for from God, he takes his wife's servant, which you all know, I'm sure. But why stop there? You can follow more instances like that through Genesis until we get to Moses, who leads his people out of Egypt, who is possibly the most powerful empire at the time, watching plagues just release them with their eyes. Still, when they get to the promised land in Deuteronomy 1, what do they do? They turn around because they're afraid. This is just a few instances just from the beginning of the Old Testament when God's people explicitly acted like they, were, they knew better than God. And all of this culminates really well in a passage from Judges 17.6 when it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doesn't that sound like us? See, in contrast, Psalm 19.1 says this way, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, even when we're tempted to live like there is no God, creation continues to declare his glory as should be done. Who are we to say to the God of the universe what is going to happen? At the end of the book of Job, when God and Job are conversing at last, Job questioned and rebuked God. And God is not pleased, saying it this way, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what, what, where, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he keeps going. Right. Read chapter 38. He keeps going. He doesn't stop there. But So what are you presuming from God today? What am I presuming from God today? We may not with our words, be blatantly saying, God, I am the provider of my life. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. But the way we think about our daily lives and our future and the way we speak, it indicates, or maybe better said, it reveals that our hearts are fighting for that autonomy. So after rebuking them as far as saying they don't know the future, James corrects their arrogant belief that they are in fact invincible, saying, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If you've been with us for some time now, there's probably a sermon series that's coming to your mind. Flashback to Ecclesiastes and a bunch of Hevel. Um, For those of you who are like, what is he talking about? Um... Hevel is translated predominantly as vanity, and it carries the connotation of breath or vapor. And while these two words are not the same, I want to be clear on that, these two words are not the same or used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Testament, they carry that same connotation of it's here for a minute, here for a second, and it's gone. And also with that, 
what happens when you just wipe your hand through vapor? It's gone. It has no substance. It can't fight back at all. And our lives on this earth are the same. We're here for a moment, and then we're gone. We might be remembered for a generation, but even to that, so what? There are a lot of inventions we use on a day-to-day basis where we can't tell you who did it. It's a morbid thought, and I don't, I do mean, but I want you to understand it's out of love, and just, it's good for us, for us to realize that we are not that great. Like, we're not. Because in that, we'll find joy in the one who is. Our lives are fragile. And there's a lot of things we cannot control. And it's shocking to us when someone dies instantly or becomes terminally ill in our own circle. But at the same time, we're not really surprised to know that it happens, are we? Our culture has a lot of, plenty of phrases. I read the poem earlier, but I think there's more to quote just to drive it further to cope with this bleak reality. There's a lot of responses to it. One, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's a philosopher named Seneca the Younger who said, it's not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. So just don't waste your life, people. That's not the John Piper version, but whatever. Um, Secondly, cut out the toxic people. Life is too short to stress yourself with people who don't deserve to be an issue in your life. So only be friends with your friends, people who give you something. And a current response to this that is actually probably summed up best by a song from the uh, 70s or 80s by the good old Billy Joel. He says, they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than, di- than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. The world's answer when faced with the reality of life being short and not guaranteed is, well, enjoy what you can and focus on what you can control. Be happy and let live. Be the master of your fate and be the captain of your soul. And church, it's not them out there. It's us. Other worldviews always find a way to creep themselves in the church, into the church. And to be honest, I think this has been a big one for the last two decades. I say it a lot. I think I probably say this every time I'm up here. The self-help movement is toxic. There is a place for learning habits, learning routines, losing weight, getting healthy, eating well, keeping a calendar, etc. But the gospel and all of those is that do this, this, and this, and then your life will be fulfilled. In church, whether that comes from a pulpit or from a secular self-help book or a pseudo-religious self-help book, it's garbage. There's nothing, there's nothing we can add to the gospel. 
We are broken beggars in need of food. And that's what James is rebuking here. We are not sovereign over our lives, no matter what we think. David tells us in Psalm 31:15, saying, My times are in your hands. And the author of Hebrews 1:3 tells us elsewhere, saying that Jesus upholds all things by the world of his power. Whether we're mindful of it, church, or whether we're not, God is the one who sustains all life, and God is the one who gives us purpose. Which brings us to our final point, a humble boasting. He gives them an answer to what they should say rather than what they are saying. Saying, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills is a simple phrase that we've all probably used at some point. It sounds trite or maybe it's like, oh, the super spiritual people say that, right? And we don't really consider the weight behind it. I mean, it's a clear acknowledgement that God is the author and protector of life. When we say, if the Lord wills, we're doing two things. First, we're acknowledging that God has a plan that will, in fact, be accomplished. And secondly, we are humbly submitting to that reality that God is in control and we are not. And our ability to acknowledge that God is the giver of good things and the protector of life is, in, is that acknowledgement to his sovereignty. But here's the deal, guys. He doesn't need us to say, he doesn't need Josiah to say, hey God, I give you permission to be sovereign over my life. That's not how this works. He just is. And the question is, would you rather be in conflict with the God of the universe or walking in his plan? But clearly this is a hard issue. James is not just saying, hey guys, you need to make sure at, when you make a plan that you say, if God wills, we will do this. And if you say those four world, words, then everything's okay. You said the chant, perfect. Not at all. You can say these words while still completely living as if you're not considering God's sovereignty. And you can live humbly submitted to his plan without ever saying these four words. Please, please, please don't let the big takeaway from this passage be that I need to say if the Lord wills, otherwise, or I need to just pray before I do literally anything or I can't move. Like that, that is not the message here whatsoever. James is speaking to the heart of these merchants. If our hearts are truly positioned to say if the Lord wills, we're going to see this passage play itself out in three areas that I believe he's speaking to here to three fears that we won't have enough, do enough, or maybe know enough. In Matthew 6, we're reminded twice that God is our provider from beginning to end. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. A simple prayer for enough. Moving further into verse 25, he tells us not to be anxious about our life, what we will eat or drink, nor what we will put on. It's not life more than food or clothing. And he says, look at the sparrows. No, smallest bird. It's the lowest. The sparrow is the lowest like, bird out there. It's like the, the mouse of, of birds. No one pays attention to it. They got everything they need. It's clearly a paraphrase. They have everything they need. Don't you know that I care more about you than sparrows? Do you know that this morning? Really, 
I, I don't know what all of you are going through this morning, but do you know that God cares more about you than everything in creation that has everything it needs? He does. Jesus is not telling his disciples not to plant food, not to work, not to, he's not doing that, right? He's making the point that our life is about more than just survival. We're not here just to eat, to wear clothes, to go through life. We are a part of God's plan for redemption. We have a higher calling than survival. We have the opportunity to glorify our God. Our acknowledgement of God's sovereignty humbly relinquishes our delusion of being our own provider. See, this is why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. See, I've never wondered where my next meal was going to come from personally. And I would imagine most of you probably haven't either. And because of that, it's very easy for me to assume that it's my job to provide for me and my family. When in all reality, it's always coming from God. While studying this passage, I've been really convicted about how I pray pray before my meals. Dear God, thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, yes, pizza, let's go. But really, like, do we stop and think and say, thank you, God. You, You have given me this. Like, without you, this would not be mine. And it sounds so simple, but in our culture where we're going, 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 we forget, and we, we go, go, go. We say it over and over and over again, and we don't think about it. And then we drift. In Hebrews 2, he talks about leading to apostasy and how no one just jumps into that. But it's the slow drifting away, that slow forgetting that it is our God who provides all along. We don't need to be afraid of not having enough. If the economy dips, if I lose my job, if you maybe in here, like you are dependent on someone else to be your provider, if that person grows ill and can't provide for you, as Christians, we can rest knowing that it is our God who loves us, who is good, who is our provider, not ourselves. So rather than clinging to the hope that we can provide for ourselves and being in control, let it go. And just hold on to God and trust our Father. Trust our Father to provide. So if our main objective in life is not survival, then there must be more pressure to do something, right? Like since we don't have to think about surviving, we need to do more for God. That's kind of the next action here. These merchants justified their plans saying, we will make a profit. That's why we're doing what we're doing. But the merchants forget to acknowledge their God as the giver of success. If I'm honest with you right now, of these three that we're talking about, this is absolutely the hardest one for me to deal with. When I look at, I have to just, I have to tell people why I'm so busy at work. And I see it in my, my workplace all the time. I'll talk to a coworker and I'm like, oh man, I'm so busy. I got, I got 150 emails to reply to. I got six meetings this day. And it's like, let me tell you how busy I am because I have to let you know that I'm super important because I'm busy and I, I accomplish a lot of things, right? And it's not just in the workplace, y'all. It's in church and in ministry too. We talk, we've talked about it in our small group before. Like 
I feel it. Like I see so many people that I'm supposed to like have dinner with or meet with or, you know, serve. And then what about my family? Am I spending enough time with Isla and Jude and my wife? Like, and what about my extended family? They exist too. And they're in town. Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. And I know some of you in here feel that way. And they're all good things that we have to accomplish, right? There are a lot of good things to do, but as human beings and not gods, we have limited time. And that is good. Yes. See, if we're not careful, we get that sense of being overwhelmed and it can just lead to being paralyzed, essentially. This is what they call now FOMO, fear of missing out, or it's changed again to FOBO, fear of better options. And people, especially the young, but not limited to, are severely suffering from this. Like, this is a condition. It's not just a thing people throw at. We don't just say, oh, FOMO, I love FOMO. Like, people know they seriously can't make a decision because they think there's something else out there that they need to do. And it places anxiety on people when literally no decision is being made because we are just terrified that we're going to make the wrong decision or do the wrong thing. See, but submitting to the sovereignty of God as James is calling us to do liberates us from the responsibility to make our own lives measure up. We do not have to talk about how great we are or how incredibly well we handle all of the business of life. When we arrive at heaven, we are not going to pull out some sort of resume that God is going to look over and decide if we get a walk in. You see, when we ask ourselves, am I doing enough? We are implying that there is, in fact, an enough to be done. As if we could somehow do enough good to repay what Christ has done for us. Even when every good deed we accomplish is planned for us by our Father. Look with me to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Any enough we do for God is a gift of ministry that we get to participate in. Any time we give a cup of cold water to a beggar, and Jesus says, you've done it unto me, that is a gift where we get to participate in the work of our Father. The previous two fears set the stage for the third. The merchants need to provide so that they can, in fact, have a tomorrow. They need to be successful for today so that they can have success tomorrow. They wanted to know what tomorrow was going to bring them. As much as I would like to, I do not need to know for certain that my job is going to last another 20 years. I do not need to know what the political landscape or the cultural climate is going to be for my children as they grow up. As much as I hope for my children's future so that I can, I want to know my children's future so that I can protect them and help them, I am not God. And there is someone else who is protecting and guiding them. Church, we're not God. Technology has increasingly deceived humanity into thinking that we are limitless. We all hold a little box in our pockets, or right here, 
that makes us feel omniscient, in some ways omnipresent, because we can be reached at the sending of a text, and maybe even sovereign, because I can control and dictate my home, pay my bills, whatever it may be, very quickly. In her book, None Like Him, Jen Wilkins said that our comfort lies not in holding all knowledge, but in trusting the one who does. When we try to hold all knowledge together, we try to act like God. And when we try to act like God, we are rivaling God rather than worshiping God, which is what we were created for. As Augustine said, like, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. When we rival our God, we will be a restless people. In verse 17, James appears to make an odd and abrupt turn, saying that so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. He's really just simply stating that you've heard what I've said, and if you continue to boast in your sin, or in, boast in your arrogance, then you are in sin. And this truth is for anyone who knows the right thing. I think our culture today, I think sin is a lot, is exclusively something we actively do, like lie, cheat, or steal. But what James is trying to communicate here is that we can sin by not doing something as well. James doesn't want his readers to be paralyzed by this thought, though. Instead, he wants them to acknowledge God's involvement and provision in all things. As believers, there will be moments when we don't completely understand why we are supposed to do something. We also may not understand why God is doing something in our lives. See, if we truly believe that God is sovereign and in control and that he is good and that he loves us, then when we face trials and suffering, we should go to him boldly and ask God why. I started this sermon telling you about my uncle who passed suddenly. Praise God, he spent his life as a disciple and his children and family are believers. But don't think for a second that his daughter who started high school that week, was asking God why. There are some of you in here right now who are walking through trials and who are hurting. Maybe you've lost a parent, or you have a sick child, your marriage is falling apart and reconciliation is nowhere in sight, or maybe you're single and all you want is to have a family and children. Maybe it's at work. But we don't have to fear about not knowing what's going to happen or about losing control of this world here. Because we have a different ending. How do I know this? Look at the cross. Christian, look at the cross. Hebrews 2.9 tells us, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, submitted to God's sovereign will perfectly on our behalf so that we could be purchased for God's possession. The worship team can come up, if you would, please. 1 John 4:15 through 18 tells us that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. See, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. 
By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Church, all fear is gone because God has sealed our lives as his possession in death and resurrection of Jesus. Church, this is not the end. Anything and everything that the world throws at us is preparing us for that day. We do not need to read the poem of Invictus and cry aloud, I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul because I don't know what's going to happen and I have to control this. Instead, for the Christian, we joyfully read that Christ is the captain of my fate. He is the master of my soul. He is my only hope in life and death. Church, applying this verse is going to be different for every single one of us. Because we all in different areas want to control our lives differently. But what I want to invite us to do now, where we have been clinging to and holding, trying to be our own saviors by controlling our surroundings or controlling our future or whatever it may be, ultimately living without any regard for the sovereignty that God has over our lives, I want to call us to repentance. It seems different than saying, oh God, I got to quit um, lying or I got to quit watching these bad movies or I got to quit drinking or smoking or whatever it may be. Church, God has called us higher than that. He has called us to be with him and to commune with him today and to not commune with him today is in fact sin. And so we, as believers, have been given this opportunity to turn to him and to rely on him and to be his child and to rest with the one who loves you. See, God loves you. And it's not that God loves you and wants to give, has a wonderful plan for your life. It's that God loves you and wants to give you life. And it's life found in him. So in this moment, as we sing this song, confess with your mouth. If you need prayer, find someone to pray with. Don't walk out these doors still trying to cling to your righteousness, still trying to cling to your life. Cling to Christ. Cling to the cross. It's the only, only way. Father, as we leave this morning, as we sing to you, reveal in our hearts where we are living as functional atheists, where we are saying, my will be done rather than your will be done, God. Even when we're doing good things, Lord, where, where we are doing those good things in efforts to make ourselves look better, God, show us, humble our hearts and show us where we need to turn and say, God, it's all for you. It's all by you. The end of my life is not that I, I achieved greatness, but the end of my life is that I am with you finally at last. That on that day when Christ returns, when we will see him face to face, our hearts will be made complete at last. Because you, Jesus, are the captain of my fate and you are the master of my soul.